Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I've been I've been volunteering up there since I was uh, old enough to do so, and I was just up there um, earlier in the month. We had our last uh, program of the season. Uh, we did a late program in the year. Unfortunately, we got rained out, but um, it's always a lot of fun. I bet. Wow, dude. I didn't I see. I feel bad. I just I didn't know any of your interests, and I think uh, Egyptology and astronomy are probably like among the two coolest possible interests you could have. <laughs> well, thank you. I you know I, I grew up in a household where my father, who who's an archaeologist by by profession, um, also cool. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I ended up going on, um, on on digs when I was a kid, and most of it here in the Bay Area. Um, dealing with the local, or I should say formerly local Native American tribes. And uh, that has always kind of started my, my whole passion for it all. And uh, it's just kind of carried on from there and branched out into all sorts of, of what I like to think of as interesting topics that, you know, most people yeah. I come across agree with me for the most part. They're definitely interesting, yeah. I mean, that's cool. Hey, re- just one other quick question. Are you using headphones or no? I am. I do have a pair of headphones on. Okay, so they're plugged into the bottom of the mic. Actually, I have them plugged into my computer. Um, oh, I guess that's fine. I guess that also works. Eric, yeah. Eric, you're yeah. telling me your oh, dad was a genuine artifact discovering archaeologist. Archaeologist. Well, I, I should have prepositioned it with there are many different types of archaeology. Um, while my father wasn't really active in the digging aspect of it, um, he's more of a, a, a research archaeologist. His field's uh, research focuses primarily on um, making observations. And so he does astronomical observations at ancient Native American sites that you were You are kidding. He's an, he's an, th- there's a word. He's an archaeoastronomer or something, Yes. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. He's, no he also has a, way. Yeah, he has a degree in cartography as well. And so he, he actually would classify himself as a, um, a topographic archaeologist because he, he studies the, the lay of the land. And it's uh, it's astronomical alignments, and so, wow, dude, I think your dad might be my hero. <laughs> I'll tell him you said so. <laughs> oh so my cool. goodness, an archaeo astronomer, dude, that is so cool. Yeah, um, you know, he he went to Berkeley, uh, achieved his degree there, did a few years of student teaching um, in the English department, actually, while he was working on his his um, archaeology and, and cartography degrees. And uh, cartography. He has a degree in cart- uh, cartography. Yes. Map making. Map making. Jason, so, you yep. know that's like Josh. My dream this, job. This guy is. <laughs> I mean, he. Wow, that's really cool. I um. No, really. Like, I I wished. There Josh, was... haven't you majored in every one of those fields? <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> No, I, I wish. We should get you and my dad together sometime. You guys would have a blast. Yeah, seriously, dude. We should. We could go like geocaching or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude. Cartography. I I thought for a semester that I wanted to be a cartographer, but it, it turns out like a degree in geography at San Jose State is like cultural geography or something. Yeah. It's yeah. just not. It's not as like scientific as I wanted it to be. And um, sure. Yeah, I got over it pretty quick. But, the, but, but <laughs> it would have been, been a BA, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Like I, I took a class um, where it was all about maps, and we had to like look at um, 
what do they call them? Quadrangles. Do you know what a quadrangle is? Uh, mm. That that is more his his field of specialty. I, I never quite got into. Right, uh, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's a square. <laughs> it's a it's what it's a square that t- two lines of longitude and two lines of latitude make on a globe. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I think I and you can then you can then start dividing that up like like into smaller squares and and they they have names for each little measurement. Right? Is that right? I feel like I studied that. Probably. I don't know, but. <laughs> but it was really good. cool. I mean, like one of the assignments was to look at this big map, and you had to like go this many degrees, and like you had to like find these places. The the map the the assignment would tell you to do something, and you would have to say where that led you on the map. So, oh wait, let, let me let me tell you a story. Um, my father uh, is a bit accident prone, and he had a. Um, he, he was driving down from Mount Hamilton, coming down from the observatory, actually, and he was driving through Grant Parker, or just about to begin. We, we know that road. area all too well. Excellent. Great. <laughs> I spent my whole childhood there. Um, and he, he was coming down the mountain, and this was about three in the morning, and he fell asleep at the wheel. Oh, oh that is not a good place to fall asleep. <laughs> not at all. And he, he awoke in time to see himself veering into the other lane, and then overcorrected, and ended up smashing into the mountain. And then overcorrected again and went off an embankment uh, that was about 30 feet high. Oh, um, shit. And, and thankfully only 30 feet high because just a mere probably three or 400 feet up the road, he would have gone off an embankment about 100 if not more feet high. Yeah, seriously, dude. Whoa. But he, he ends up totally in the car. The whole, whole uh, bottom of the car is pretty much torn out. Um, and the electrics in the car are, are shot. Um he then has to get out of the car and because it's three o'clock in the morning. It's three o'clock in the morning and walk back to the the ranger station where he had all <laughs> stuff, you know, uh, and call my mom to come to come pick him up. And thankfully he wasn't he wasn't injured, but his glasses were completely destroyed. And so my father, you know, very much needs his glasses to see, as folks who wear glasses often do. Mm-hmm. And um, he had to navigate based on his bearings um, and pitch pitch dark. It was pitch did, black. Did he use the stars? He, I, I swear to God. <laughs> I swear to God. My father, you know, he, he's been at the park for so many years. He knows his way around. But he was able to orient himself based on, you know, astronomical alignments and find out exactly where he was and, and started walking and made it right back to the ranch house a couple of miles away. Um, oh, my God. Completely dark. Wow. Yeah. That's a... That that degree saved his life. <laughs> well, maybe it wasn't that extreme, but you know he. Um, That's pretty crazy. He's, he's he's quite an extraordinary individual. Uh, yeah! Wow. <laughs> guess looking at him too, because he, he's he's he um, he seems very unsuspecting, but he, he ends up being. Um, he, there's always a story about dad. There's always there's always something. Dude, you know what I think of when I when I think of archaeoastronomy. I watched this show once where I don't I can't set this up perfectly but it was something about how like a uh, ancient civilization built uh some buildings so that you could look at it in line with where the sun would peek through the like uh, this uh, like picture two mountains they come to a they, they they're up against each other making a valley right yeah, but picture okay. like picture like these are big mountains and and like you're looking up at a valley. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. And the sun 
at a certain time of the year when he gets like lowest or something, I don't know, uh, would go and just barely graze the bottom of that valley and line up with like a building. And like the cool thing about like archaeoastronomers is they have to like realize that this building is an astronomical, like like some sort of astronomical instrument, uh, but the planet's um, uh, what is it? How it spins like a top? The um, precession, the precession yeah. of the uh-huh. of the stars has changed. So they have to like calculate that and figure right. out that this was a, like an astronomical uh, tool. You know what I mean? Every every twenty five thousand six hundred years, the 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 Earth spins on its axis, it wobbles, if you will. It makes one complete rotation, which is precession, and you you can calculate the star drift because the stars are moving, but not in a in a method that is really viewable. We on on Earth are in fact moving, and that's the the greatest motion, so to speak, of the stars that we see. And so you're quite right in that you have to calculate backwards, however many thousands of years to get the alignments just right and that's exactly what my father does yeah that's so cool because like a regular person would not wouldn't because you can't see that alignment anymore it just doesn't happen right but whereas when you're talking about you know a large construct that was created by civilization the the sites that my father are dealing with were created by the native americans who planted a series of oak groves to uh line up with certain orientations certain uh alignments uh, you know, based on the equinox and the solstice and other other you know planetary alignments, oh, um, m- many of which are no longer <laughs> there or have suffered rot and are now dead or removed by the park system years ago. So he has to identify the oldest trees that would have been there at that time and look for signs of not only replantings but also any other um, any other plants that don't really belong, so to speak, that were there for wow. you know ceremonial reasons. And huh. from there, then he can extrapolate where this was, um, where this was being planted, or the reason why it was planted, and 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 the what? the cultural significance of it all. Dude, that's crazy. That's like unbelievable. That's really. Yeah. And he's been doing this for for many years. Um, there's there's one particular site that I'll talk about because we're not recording. Are um, we recording? Yeah, we've been recording for ten minutes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that's cool. Yeah, Eric, that's, that's kind of how we do it. <laughs> Hey, Jason, why don't you uh, bring us in? In that case, I can't tell you anything. So you're just the, the listeners are just going to have to um, sit in suspense. Oh, is, is it like confidential? or It is confidential. It can't be spoken about publicly. Wait, wait. Seriously? Wait, Seriously. what about everything that we just said? Everything else is fine. Uh, those, those are all... Um, those are all alignments that are they're well known, but there's one that for the, its preservation is being kept from the public because we don't you want. You are people. kidding me, dude! Wow, good thing, yep. good thing we. Uh... Good thing I, I I thought to, to say that. I know. Hey, yeah. Eric, no, why don't you tell us? I'll just put a big bleep over the whole five minute conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Jason, what podcast is this? Uh, this is. Hey, put that dog hey, away, dude. Seriously, that dog, <laughs> Bonham. Can you please you know, hold on? I'm gonna take his collar off. Bring us in. Ta- I'm gonna take his collar off. Do it. All right. So this is the nor- <laughs> This is the no format podcast um, where uh, we've got myself, Jason Hayes, Joshua Wettenkamp, and guest star Eric Brickmont uh, on the show for what is this episode 13? Is that correct? Okay, Who knows? I'm back. Josh, Josh, what episode is this? Yeah, I think we're at 13, dude. Episode 13 of the No Format Podcast, and we're here to talk with Eric Brickmont, who um, 
is, is I think I'm going to go ahead and say an expert in uh, the field of Egyptology. Eric, do you want to tell us uh, kind of y- your background? Sure, yeah. Um, well, first, thanks for having me on the show. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, I, I have to say, I don't have a formal degree at this time. I'm working towards one at the moment. So I guess I would have to classify myself as an Egyptophile, which is uh, what we are referred to in the <laughs> Egyptological uh, community out there. Folks who, who are very passionate about Egyptology, who, who have a pretty, pretty considerable working knowledge of the subject, but, but don't possess degrees yet and or are too lazy in which to do, to do so. Um, <laughs> I, I am not of the latter category. I'm just, I'm working towards it. Um, but I, I spent um, most of my childhood and early adulthood continuing to do so, studying ancient Egypt. Um, I spent 10 years at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum where I worked uh, six as witch as a, as a docent and uh, four years in, in management. Uh, that, that, that's, on, that's on Almaden, isn't it? Uh, that's on Park Avenue. Park Avenue? Yeah, it's just off of the Alameda. Um, That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Great, great institution. Beautiful building. Incredible history stored in that that building. Uh, Largest collection of Egyptian artifacts on the western United States. Uh, And so we... Yeah, really. uh, I I still uh, have a great relationship with the museum. I I have many good friends who are are still uh, uh, an integral part of it. And it's a real great place to visit. And I I'll spent I'll about, check I spent that a decade. Out. Yeah, I spent ten years there. It was uh, a lot of fun. Wow. Hey, I have a question for you. Yeah, what would you recommend as a good resource to learn more about uh, Egyptology? Like, what's a good uh, for book someone or... who's for someone who's like just yeah square one? Sure. Uh, one one that I had always suggested to uh, to visitors of the museums and, and friends alike was uh, it's aptly titled Ancient Egypt. Big surprise there. <laughs> uh, written by Doctor Silverman. And uh, Silverman really lays it out in a way that is uh, not so overwhelming that it makes you feel like, oh, my God, I, I, I can't do any more of this. This f- five sentences, has, and I, I already don't know what I'm talking about or what I'm reading. Uh, he, he presents it in such a way that is really just um, available to you, easy to understand. Dude, it's I, a step point. I love history if it, if it, if it, like, if the storyteller is a good storyteller, like if the author is a good storyteller. Well, you know, they say uh, education is as much entertainment as it is, you know, educating individuals. You really have to captivate their the audience and keep their attention if you intend for them to to really absorb any of the content that you're presenting to them. So, is that is that book good at story- storytelling? Uh, in a way, I mean, you, you got to understand that we're dealing with over six thousand years of history trying to be condensed into roughly three or four hundred pages. Uh, so it, it takes a a little bit of um, a little bit of an interest in the subject already, mm-hmm. sure. To, to really kind of help, yeah. Move but I think off. anybody who's picking up that book to read it, presumably, is coming in with some interest in, in the in the subject. I mean, well, it, it's kind of hard not to have an interest in the subject. It, it's so embedded into our into our culture and to um, into to you know everything we hear about when we're growing up. You know, how many people don't know what a pyramid is or a mummy? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's something. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, of like the really like ancient cultures of the world. I mean. It's it's probably the one that is the most like immediately known, at least in our culture today. I don't know. Sure. Uh, well, it's certainly one of the the greatest contributors to what society is today. Um, so many of the firsts, so many of the the real pivotal moments in, in human history were documented there right. in ancient Egypt and spread out via trade routes and um, you know many years afterwards just by by exploration and interest in the country. 
You okay. know, I'm just I'm just gonna get this out of the way right up front in the the beginning of the podcast. I, I I well, I don't even know if this is true. I remember one factoid about ancient Egypt in a paper that I wrote long, long time ago, and I want you to tell me if this is true or not, or maybe maybe who knows. But I remember saying that one of the great contributions of the ancient Egyptians to to society uh, that's still with us today is that they were the first people to create uh, glass. Is that is there any truth to that, or was I just no that that, that up? That is true. Um, some of the earliest glass, I know, well done. Uh, some, some of the earliest glass work um, actually dates to just about 5,500 or 6, uh, or 6,000 years ago in Egypt and uh, what is known as the pre-dynastic period. And this is a, a time, you know, before the real flashy characteristic Egypt that we all kind of know and love with pyramids and pharaohs and lots of golden, you know, chariot you know, races and all that good stuff that's passed on to us from, from movies Chariot and pop race. culture. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got to throw a little Ben-Hur in there, right? Yeah, Charlton Heston. <laughs> a little Charlton Heston. But, um, you know, it's very true. Uh, it wasn't the kind of glass that you would think of uh, when you think of glass today. It is uh, small glass beads uh, that were formed in, you know, a very hot kiln uh, and then molded into, into the desired shape. And many times they would be... Um, you know they would be enriched with iron oxide and other other uh, minerals uh, that would allow the the glass to kind of uh, capture and, and retain that color, uh, hmm. and they were used primarily for ceremonial reasons. What's so find- hard about making glass, dude? You just melt sand. They got plenty of sand, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's the the difficulty of it all. It's more the 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 um, the initiative to actually do it, dude. It takes and then what do you fire do? and sand. Am I right though? I mean. <laughs> Uh, I don't think you're right. <laughs> um, actually, well, I, you know what? I've never made glass. I have no idea if it's right or wrong. Like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'll, I'm sure it's funny, impressive. I'll throw a funny glass factoid. Um, eventually, the glasswork eventually got pretty, you know, pretty sophisticated, um, and it got to the point where, in the neighboring countries of of ancient Persia, uh, that their their glass you know, was imported exclusively from the ancient Egyptians, even though they themselves were, were quite, uh, quite skilled at the, at the trade as well. Um, mm. But the Egyptians were just doing it so well that they simply stopped making glass. And eventually the, the knowledge of which kind of died out uh, in, in ancient Persia. And they just exclusively brought it in from Egypt, mm-hmm. which is terrible because eventually after you know, a series of, of foreign conquests in Egypt, the, the, the skill also died out there, so it ended up um, that that particular type of glassware ended up kind of losing its uh, its um, its wow. knowledge base and kind of disappeared for a while. Okay, question number two. <laughs> yeah, pyramids. Who built them? Aliens okay. or Egypt? Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> well, dude, you know what? The guy's into astronomy and Egyptology. Okay. All right. Okay, well, Was it no. aliens or people? <laughs> anyway, this 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 subject to me. Um, has evolved into one of the most sneaky, most clever forms of what I would like to just straight out call racism that I have ever that I've ever encountered, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Wow! Uh, when you, when you talk to to these folks, you know who have these opinions, which is fine. They're welcome to have their opinions. There are two groups of people besides the ancient Egyptians who built the pyramids. They were either aliens or Atlanteans. Or in some cases, Atlantean aliens. <laughs> and, you know, it just, it, it bothers me to my core. And I'll, I'll tell you why. The, the, the idea is, oh, well, the ancient Egyptians couldn't have possibly built the pyramids because they're so precise. 
You know, there's mm-hmm. so such an exact science, and that technology did not exist. They were far too primitive a people to possibly even conjure up the idea of this. Uh, so therefore, it had to have been outside forces, and therefore it had to either be aliens or my other favorite one, the Atlanteans, these white people, these mythical white people who had to have come on in and, and done other work for everybody else, which okay. really bothers me. Why would so, they do that? What's that? Why would they do that? What would Why be their, would their motive? Uh, you know, that's a good question. You don't want to really give credit to folks that maybe you don't consider to be as mm. equal to you. Um, you want to take away some of that. that oh, no, no, no. I think Jason was asking, why would Atlanteans do that? Yeah. Oh, who knows? <laughs> like, I would think gigantic. You know, you, yeah, exactly. You hear all these rumors, you know, they're, they're landing sites for, for alien spaceships or they were. There you go, dude. Perfect, perfect explanation. Okay. Or the reflections of their superiority over the people they enslaved the people and forced them. Or maybe, them to or maybe they were like religious pyramids, you know? Well, let me, let me, let me talk a little bit about, you know, what archaeology actual history you know history has been able to to teach us about these amazing monuments because they are extraordinarily precise have they you did been there amazing i have not oh okay. god wish i had I, i'm there in my dreams i'm there you know every time i close my eyes but i have not actually been to uh to egypt yet i just helped someone import a bunch of pictures from egypt that's almost as good as being there <laughs> not really <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i'll tell you these these monuments really are um a product of a, of a really sophisticated science, and that is the science of the ob- observation, which is something that the ancient Egyptians were just so very good at. They were so keen at observing their surroundings uh, and then using that to go ahead and lay out the foundations, first and foremost, for these um, immense, immense constructs. And we're talking about you know millions upon millions of pounds of limestone um, very accurately laid out on alignments that align with, you know, the the um, the circumpolar stars and along the lines of the uh, of the um, cardinal points, so you know, true north, south, east, and west. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's a lot of rumors about kind of how they did a lot of thought about how they did it, but some archaeological evidence points to uh, building, you know, the, this circular, probably most likely mud brick structure. That was used as a as a viewing point for going ahead and laying out some astronomical observations that gave you true north, and from there you could lay out the rest of your your orientations. Um, and the idea was that you would build this so-called artificial horizon uh, at the site where you wanted to build the pyramid, and you would wait till it got dark, and you would mark the rising of a star upon the the true horizon um, as it moved into view of your artificial horizon. And you would follow that star using what's called a sighting rod. And it would probably be a couple of guys who knew exactly what they were looking at, who would take turns and kind of shift off and off, on, off and on throughout the evening, and watch this star and keep it in their sights. And as soon as it had reached the other side of the artificial horizon, make another measurement. Uh, and in doing so, in calculating the middle point of this, you got yourself true north. And wow. from there, you know, the rest is, uh, is, is pretty, you know, relatively easy to kind of lay out. And then you have your guidelines, and that leads you to your, your foundation building. Did you follow it, that, Jason? Uh, <laughs> sort of. How about you? No, not really. <laughs> uh, sort of. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast again. <laughs> it's amazing that they could do that with, with just really simple tools. Well, that's all it really takes. And I think yeah. that's kind of my point is that... You know, you don't have to have all this advanced technology. In fact, sometimes the more advanced it gets, the more in the way it gets. 
know, yeah. the more problems ensue, the more that you kind of have to deal with rather than just doing what you want to do. Hey, you know uh, what else the Egyptians are really good at? Having slaves. Oh, boy. So it's... <laughs> You know, it's funny. I I, I did actually prepare some notes, um, and I I labeled them misconceptions because I had a feeling this was kind of going to be the topic. Misconception Uh, number one, Hebrew slaves. I have no (laughs) idea. (laughs) Well, no, let me – let me. it kind of ties in with the pyramids, right? Because some of our – a lot of our knowledge about the pyramids in a written form comes to us from people who, you know, lived a good 2,000 years after the pyramids were built. You know, the very first Egyptologists – were actually ancient Egyptians. These are the people who had lived in their country for so long that so much had happened. They had to look back in time to figure out, you know, how it all started. Well, wait. So, like, and, what? What is the? No, I read that on Wikipedia. That's true. <laughs> well, okay. Wait. What, what is the? What is the time period where the pyramids were built? Like, what's the time period that everyone sees? The the traditional pyramid building period is is known uh, as the Old Kingdom, which is roughly twenty seven hundred to twenty two hundred BCE. And we're talking; it went back. But to I mean, there's like four thousand BC. Uh, not four thousand BC, but uh, roughly four to five thousand years ago. So about twenty seven hundred to twenty two hundred BCE. But I mean, when we talk about pyramids, and I mean, I've got like I've got three different Wikipedia pages in front of me right now. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there's pyramids that l- they look really different you know i mean i'm looking at okay you know your classic pyramids at giza the ones that everybody knows that are like really perfect triangular pyramids but then you've also got like these step stone step kind of pyramids and you've got some that are i mean obviously these are just really old and eroded but i mean i'm looking at this one uh lished that just was like a pile of sand like it's you know so you, you had a lot of different techniques for building these structures and you know when you're building a pyramid out of stone and that's the core material that you're using, that's mm-hmm. a huge project. I mean, oh, we're yeah. talking about the Great Pyramid, for example. It's 485 feet tall. It was, up until the building of the Eiffel Tower, the largest man-made object on Earth. Crazy. And we're, yeah, we crazy. We're talking about roughly one and a half million limestone blocks, many of which weigh about the size of a small Volkswagen. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, wait. Did you say million? 1.5 yes. million, roughly. It's hard to say How because some of the, those stones. Well, a lot uh, of the core stones we're talking you, massive, like the size of a car. And then what about the ones like on the outside, like the ones that just the, the bulk of them? Outer stones um, that kind of made up the smoother casings would have been smaller in size, but not that much smaller. I mean, we're probably talking a good ton each. Yeah, I mean, I, I picture them being really big. Yeah, yeah the, the, the vision I have is like the size of like, like um, a piano. You know what? Like a piano. You know those uh, yeah. cra- those containers that they put on like um, barges that go across the ocean or whatever. Oh, they're not that big. They're not quite that big. It's huge. No, not quite big. No, those ones. And they take them off and they put them on the on an eighteen wheeler truck. Jason, he said the biggest ones were like Volkswagen, right? Were like car size. Yeah, roughly okay. the size of a Volkswagen. Fine, fine. Okay. Well, so that's the, still pretty so, big. so the smaller ones we're talking like. Like a piano in a bar. Sure. That, that sounds about right. Maybe about the size of a pool table. <laughs> okay, pool table. Those are huge still. They're massive. And, yeah. you know, it's and, and an amazing amount. Million, wait, wait. One and a half million in one pyramid or in all the pyramids? We're, we're just talking about the Great Pyramid. We're, we're talking, talking about, about the biggest one. Great Pyramid of Khufu. My God. I can't but, even conceive that many stones. Yeah, that's it's like unreal. But keep in mind, these were massive projects. And we're talking about, you know, roughly... At the height of the working season, probably about nineteen to twenty-two thousand, uh, you know, workers 
not slaves. slaves. That's a common. No, that's a common <laughs> misconception. That's a common all, misconception. All I picture is this is this uh, Egyptian with like one of those uh, jackal masks on, whipping some Hebrew slave. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me let me kind of lay it out for you. You know, it's interesting because right next to the pyramid, imagine a small settlement, you know, a small kind of shanty town, if you will. Work camp, right? Yeah, work camp. And it was actually more like a city. You know, yeah. it had a central food producing center where, you know, thousands upon thousands of loaves of bread were baked daily. Um, it had a, a you know, um, uh, what would you call it? a butcher, a local butcher, several of them that would be, you know, cutting up very expensive meat, uh, you know, uh, um, something that was not available to every ancient Egyptian in their diet, most focused, New, New York mostly strip. on fish and vegetable. Uh, what was had, that, Josh? I said New York Strip. Oh New York God. Strip, great big old T-bone, right for you, for, for that, those hardworking pyramid builders. And you had, you know, medical facilities, you had living conditions that were far better than what most people probably had in their own homes. Mm. And this is not something that you do for slaves. Slaves are expendable workforces. You don't care about these people. Okay, You're not going to okay, take care now of them. Now, hold on. Were there any slaves? Slavery was used in Egypt. <laughs> I'm not going to say it wasn't used in Egypt. But you, where you find it mostly is out in the fields um, from primarily just an agricultural institution, which was mostly run by the temples of Egypt. Um, and so that's mostly where the slaves were kept. Okay. And so the folks we, that were the folks that were helping or working to construct these pyramids, I mean, they got to what you're saying they got to live in this camp that has pretty nice, um, you know, amenities, I guess. And uh, are they getting paid like a salary or like a wage or something? Or it's like, well, does- cur- currency didn't really exist in Egypt until the Greek period, so you didn't really have that being used at the time. Um, okay. You were paid by given. By being given a place to live, some great food, food. you know, beer. Beer was a number one ration in Egypt. Beer, Uh, Egyptian beer. Egyptian beer. It was quite literally quoted as a gift from the gods. Um, (laughs) That is is, uh, transcribed from actual hieroglyphs. It was considered a gift from the gods. Does Egypt still make beer? Oh, yeah, it does. Some very good beer, in fact. Um, (laughs) I know that. There's a saying among, among Egyptologists that a, a beer a day keeps the doctor away. Um, the reason being the water is so disgustingly polluted uh, that if you get in contact with it, you're sure to get sick. And this is exactly why the ancient Egyptians drank it. Um, they didn't really drink water uh, straight out of the Nile. It was not advised. You drank a, a um, kind of heavily distilled beer um, that was uh, not nearly as potent as the kind of beer that you would drink during, you know, celebrations and party times. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was drunk by everybody, children, men, women, old people, everybody. Everyone drank it. Oh. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Back, <laughs> back, back to the pyramids very quickly. Uh, I mean, this is, this is, these are, you know, people who for three or four months out of the year had literally nothing to do because the Nile would annually overflow its banks, filling up the farmland where people spent most of their time working. And therefore, Egypt had an abundance of out-of-work people needing to be you know given something to do and so these great big building projects were put in place by the pharaoh and it was not uncommon you know around the time of the flooding season to see a ship pull up a couple of folks disembark say hey you know we need all your strongest guys pharaoh wants a pyramid built send them on their way and they come on back a few months later with a couple extra rations and a few extra jugs of beer hmm. 
That's that reminds how, how many, me of like something in U.S. history where after like the war or something where the government Roosevelt's yeah. five-year plan. <laughs> there yeah, you they go. built the yeah. highways. This, they this built is the five-thousand-year uh, plan. <laughs> wow. What were you I say, mean, Jason? how long did it take to build a pyramid? One. All depends on the pyramid, and you know, with these large stone pyramids, uh, it could take years. What's, but the majority what's the longest of pyramids, times? I mean, years. Are we talking five years? We're, are we talking? We're talking a couple years? of decades. So somewhere between. You know, the Great Pyramid, the largest construct in Egypt, roughly took somewhere between, you know, t- you know, 19 and 22, 20, yeah, well, let's say about right. 17, eight, 20 years around there. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Seems yeah. like that's how long it would take. Um, but most pyramids in Egypt, the ones like you were describing earlier at Lisht, um, are mud brick interiors with stone exteriors that have long since been ransacked for their stone and used to build, you know, ancient and or medieval settlements uh, nearby. And so there's roughly 130 large pyramids in Egypt. What? Um, yeah, that's very true. And most people, um, tourists and farmers alike, walk right by them, don't even know what they are, because to them, they're just large humps of mud brick. Yeah, and uh, uh, that's, you know, that's exactly what they are now. I remember seeing on like Discovery Channel or something that uh, like if you were to go out into the desert uh, in in Africa where these people lived, like you you would... Once in a while, come across uh, like a triangular, and this is like naturally formed, like basically a, a pyramid. I mean, I guess not nearly as big as like the pyramids that these people built, but a pyramid that was like naturally formed by like the wind and everything. And they thought that maybe the Egyptian people had seen that and thought, well, hey, look, that structure stands pretty well on its own and doesn't, doesn't erode. It actually was formed naturally, so we'll build something just like that and it'll work pretty well. Have you ever heard anything like that or no? Well, there's a lot of theories kind of surrounding what inspired the ancient Egyptians to build pyramids. Um, another one, a little like bit why, more. Like why they settled on that shape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, that is and another one that's a little bit more um, outlandish, in my opinion, a little bit more kind of out there, uh, is around Saqqara, which is the first building place of a large stone pyramid, the Pyramid of, of King Zoser at Saqqara. And there is an event that does occur naturally. Um, through at certain times of the year when there's a lot of cloud formation in the area uh, during the winter. Um, you can actually see as a break through the clouds from time to time, almost a kind of pyramid-like shape, if you will, kind of casting down on the horizon. It just kind of has to do with the way the, the weather kind of feels that, that way in the, uh, that day and the way that it works out. And that, that's, you know, one theory. Another one that to me is a lot, you know, makes a lot more sense um, is that some of the earliest creation myths that come to us from ancient Egypt focus on the primeval mound, uh, a mound of earth uh, from which everything springs forth from. And this idea that this, this, this mound, this uh, pile of, of dirt, which was you know, so vital to a, to a desert society, you know, who based their whole civilization around agriculture, um, that from there, why not build this shape to send your pharaoh and or anyone uh, on to the afterlife. It's simply symbolic of regeneration and rebirth, which is the whole concept and idea, you know, mm. surrounding yeah, rebirth. Yeah, I mean, that is, I'm sure it was just some religious thing, don't, don't you? I mean, that seems very likely that that shape uh, yeah. had something to do with religion. Yeah, and it's a shape it's, that's not I can buy into that, yeah. by any means. You know, this is a shape that you see recognized uh, around the world. Yeah, uh, yeah, Mount- you always hear that. There's there's pyramids all over the all over the planet. Yeah, it's, you know. it's a process in anthropological circles called cross-cultural parallel development. 
in that civilization separated by thousands of years or thousands of miles that may have never had any direct contact with one another develop along similar similar lines because we we all more or less think the same way we're all looking and observing our environments and kind of pulling the same ideas out from them but you know developing them and carrying them on in maybe slightly different fashions yeah that's cool hmm. yeah i i've always found pyramid building to be interesting um but it's never really been my my forte what's really got me excited about egypt so what gets um, you excited about yeah egypt? you know it, it's funny it's, it's probably the what most people consider to be the most boring period of egypt and that is the the early dynastic periods the time really before the pyramids before all that was going on and just kind of putting myself in the mindset of these early egyptians um who were pulling together a civilization under really difficult circumstances. You know, mm. about, about 7,000 years ago, Egypt went through this really dramatic um, shift in its climate. Uh, before that, Egypt was an extremely wet place. Uh, the Nile itself was a much larger, much more fertile river um, known as the Proto-Nile. And this... <laughs> like a proto-star. <laughs> and this, you know, this supported... Um, hunter-gatherer societies for, you know, for the past 40,000 years uh, before that time. You know, we find ancient tools, um, you know, hand axes and what have you that go back, you know, thousands upon thousands of years. And all of a sudden, everything changes just within a few thousand years. And it's turned into this really arid, dry, desert-like uh, environment. And these people had to learn how to live off of it. When we talk about the Egyptians living in this part of the world, I mean, it's all along the Nile, but that's a pretty long river, isn't it? I mean, you've got the, the Delta area that I think most people are sort of familiar with, which feeds into the Mediterranean. Um, but then that thing, it comes down southward. Like, And I'm looking at a map, and they've got Lower Egypt, which is actually very near the, the Delta area, then Upper Egypt, which is below that. And then you go further down, and it's called Kush. And... Where were these people living? Uh, they were living right along the Nile banks. Just the whole thing? The whole, the whole thing. And, you know, it stretched all the way from, you know, what is now the modern Sudan, uh, which was, you know, among many other small tribes, but the, the larger kingdom of Kush, uh, up into the Mediterranean, where Egypt proper uh, was located. And okay. you're quite right in that you have these two different, um, these two different sections of Egypt, if you will, upper and lower. Uh, which were separated uh, not just by elevation, which is kind of where they get their names from. That's why Upper Egypt's in the south and Lower Egypt's in the north. It's all based off of uh, the we're elevation. Talking elevation. Okay, because if you look at it in just terms of north and south, Lower it's, Egypt is in right. the north. Precisely. So it's it's based off of elevation. Um, right. but, but it was also separated by considerable cultural and we even believe um, differences in the, in the language and the dialect of the language. Um, two, two pretty separate parts of the country developing along parallel lines but, but still kind of separate from each other until eventually they were they were brought together and that's by those very first pharaohs um, the first one who, who passes down to us by tradition whether it was a, a real person or not has been heavily debated um, is a pharaoh by the name of Narmer uh, who is considered to be the, the one who unified who was the upper Egyptian ruler who then brought his you know whether it be armies or maybe brought his culture through the trade routes um, probably a, a combination of them both, and eventually unified all of these people under a single leadership, which was worshipped like a god. Hmm. Wow. What's, yeah, your favorite, what's your favorite Egyptian god? 
Huh. I like the one who's like a dog. His head is a dog. A jackal, dude. It's a jackal, right? Anubis. It, uh, Anubis. It's, it's debated. Uh, jackal makes sense, but it's probably a combination of several canids all, all kind of combined <laughs> together, uh, as is often the way in Egypt. My favorite god, that's a great question. I'd have to say Toth. Um, was he? He was, the god of, he was the god of wisdom. Um, he was represented by two different animal forms. So you either had a ibis, which is a very long, slender build uh, bird that kind of has a bit of an arch to it, um, which the Egyptians associated with a, a, a scribe's quill, which would have been used for you know, writing down all this, this great information and knowledge, uh, and or a baboon. And uh, the baboon, because it can sit in a cross-legged position, just like the scribes would have been observed uh, in the temples doing their writings. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he, he was who, he was pretty interesting. Hey, who was I talking with? Was I talking uh, with you about this, Jason? How like no one, like you don't meet someone who like believes in Greek gods anymore. <laughs> no, I we didn't talk about who that. Was I talking to about that. Oh, oh, God! <laughs> Sometimes you do, and it's no, but really, no, no, really, really is terrible there, situation. Are you saying you you're telling me there's someone who truly believes that there is Zeus in the clouds and that he is God? I, I'm sure there is. Oh, I'm, sure, um, I'm sure there's someone, Josh. You don't think so? I mean, that isn't like doesn't have like, maybe not someone condition. that you or I know, but like maybe in in another part of the world. I mean, yeah, no, certainly. Honestly, I, I can't imagine that. Like I, that seems like a dead religion to me. And so does <laughs> Egyptian, like whatever Egyptians. No, there's people who believe in some pretty crazy stuff, man. I mean, I um I, I used to run into a group <laughs> of people when I worked at the museum all the time, and uh, these folks described themselves as Kemetans. And it's, it's absolutely hilarious because one of many words used to describe the people of ancient Egypt that we transliterate today as the word Kemet, um, this is just one of many that were used in ancient Egypt, was adopted by these, this group of people and they've, they've bastardized it with this ridiculous <laughs> pronunciation of, of Kemetans um, because, of course, the English conven- you know, conventions of, of, of language much, must pass on to all languages. Um, but they, these people really kind of sort of believe in the ancient Egyptian religion as close as they can get to it within their own cult-like atmosphere. And it's it's always been um, a source of rather uncomfortable conversations for me. Hey, you know what? Now, now that I think about it, the conclusion that I came to with this person, which I have no idea who this person was that I was talking with. Why uh, were you? <laughs> the conclusion that we came to was that, uh, like, modern religions probably came out of those religions so those religions are still around they're just in different forms you know what i mean oh well, absolutely true yeah. yeah absolutely much of what we see um reflected and i mean seriously like are modern religions any more outrageous not, than not one bit like i mean they're they're just as as you know bizarre yeah so. sure i mean if you look at, at any religion it has its mythos it has its figures from its from its teachings and its its uh, sacred writings that are meant to pass on you know morals and other other teachings yeah, and dude, lessons. No to different. Us. It's like it's no difference. I bet yeah, you, like an ancient Egyptian would look at our religion and be like, "These people believe in this? Like what? <laughs> what a bunch of dummies!" You know, like <laughs> actually, ancient Egyptians would have gone, "Hey, they stole that from us." <laughs> yes, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 funny. It's you know, it's something that. When you when you go back far enough into history, we're all more or less doing the same thing. You know, our our core beliefs, our core religions, are all built around the same concepts and ideas. And so it's it's you know it's some of it is just sure 
that's very similar to the way it was thousands of years ago because that's just kind of the way that people think. And some of it is really people. specific, though. Yeah. Some of it, though, is really specific and passes on. Um, I, I've done a lot of research into early Christian traditions, and it's funny because in ancient uh, Egypt, just coming out of uh, the period of, of Hellenistic rule and leading into the, into the Roman period, um, you find Christianity taking refuge in Egypt. And some of the very first Christian churches in the world were actually converted ancient Egyptian temples. And so a lot of the iconography that was surrounding these folks as they were setting up their very first you know, places of worship were the ancient Egyptian gods themselves. Um, which is ironic because many of those places have now been converted into mosques. And so if you go to Egypt today, you see thousands of years of different religious traditions, sometimes contained within just one building uh, that has its origins back in ancient Egypt. Okay, let me wow. let me drop this bomb on you guys. Oh, boy. So, uh, science, how is that any different? I want to hear what you guys have to say about this. How is, sci- how is believing in science any different than believing in a religion? Hey, are we going to do this on the podcast? Are we going to get <laughs> into a, a religious, no, religious I, I scientific a, war? I heard a really good answer for this. Well, if, if I may, all right, all right. My, my two cents to the Let's topic. Let's hear it. I'm interested. Religion is the pursuit of truth. It's it's wanting to understand what we don't understand. Well, so we want far, to a, that's no tr- different than religion. That's what I mean. It's exactly the same as science. Okay, okay. Science and religion are are both going towards the exact same goal. Yes. They both want to pursue truth. Yes. And so when I when I see the two, I have a very difficult time seeing any real true distinction between the both because so you're just saying that religion is is a different kind of science. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're one and the same. Um, I think that religion has a lot of very strong cultural ties that bring in communities and form communities and bring those together. And there's certainly um, validity to religion, and it certainly has a, a place in society. Um, however, science is kind of this real technical pursuit of that truth and, and will go to whatever ends necessary to, to really find the answers to that. And I think that they, they complement each other perfectly, um, and they really should be considered and viewed as one rather than, than two separate... Incorrect. You know, Let me tell thoughts. you why. All right. <laughs> oh, wow. <Okay>. Science... <laughs> listen, science uh, is believing in a method, whereas religion, you're believing in a higher power that you can never prove or disprove. You see what I'm saying? Like, I, I, can, I, can, I can be like... Uh... Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah. You're believing because oh, like you can be wrong in science uh, by proving by by using the science. Someone can disprove you. You yeah. can have a theory and, that you believe in, and then I can disprove it. Exactly, and uh, and if you just but with religion, I can never in, disprove in, you. In, exactly, if you believe in the method, though, that's that's what sets it apart from religion. The method, sure, the and scientific. obviously they they kind of differentiate from each other in more specific ways. But I think their their core nature, their core value. Is the same. The pursuit they, of they, knowledge. They, they, yeah, exactly. Okay. And that, I think I think, I think you said it really well. The pursuit of truth. Okay, we can move on. We don't have to talk anymore about that. Yeah, okay. I don't know, man. That's, <laughs> you're getting into we're some. Getting pretty, we're getting pretty deep uh, into That's, this uh, podcast here. I, I didn't alienate some people. Religion. <laughs> Modern religion, anyway. Dude, I belong to the religion of Zelda. Okay, we're not talking about Zelda on this podcast. We've already we've already done that. We've we've beaten that one pretty pretty hard. We're not doing it. So, so um, if I may, kind of introduce something into the into the forum. Let's here. hear it. 
yeah, uh, another another misconception that has always really um, really bothered me uh, that I'd love to clarify to all of your all of your listeners: um, curses in ancient Egypt. I'm listening. I don't all know right. any Egyptian curses. They're not a culture that I associate curses Dude, with. No, the curse of the the curse of the tomb or something. I remember the story about this uh, guy, like the mummy's tomb, like mummies yeah, come to life. Yeah, and he and okay. he ended up dying. Right, that dude ended up dying. Well, and I'm know, not saying I believe of... I don't believe in curses. I'm just saying the guy happened to die and it <laughs> and know, it coincided yeah. with whatever. Do you know what guy <laughs> I'm talking about? I don't have uh, a clue what you're talking about, John. Eric, you're, you? you're referring to Lord Carnarvon, I believe. There you go. Probably. <laughs> I don't know his name. I'll, I'll I just, look, I'll look I just know you. there's some famous. Hey, what for 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 the listeners who also like myself don't know this story. You want to you want to tell the story real quick? Yeah, let me go ahead and, and give it a little backstory first. Um, there, there's you. a lot of kind of stories surrounding curses in Egypt, but the, probably the most famous one um, surrounds the discovery of King Tut's tomb. And uh, it was said that at the time in which the tomb was discovered in 1922 by um, good old Howard Carter, uh, a now very infamous uh, Egyptologist, the lights of Cairo went dark. And um, his main sponsor, uh, who was uh, a very wealthy uh, British lord by the name of Lord Carnarvon, who had been funding his his seemingly fruitless efforts in Egypt to find this this so-called missing tomb, one that, that some people even doubted existed, um, became gravely ill and lost his life shortly after the the grand unveiling uh, of the tomb, along with the several workers who had uh, excavated the tomb. And, well, that is a little spooky. Well, you know, it, it it's funny, because a lot of these deaths, no one can even confirm actually happened. Um, the one that we do know with any certainty was, was Lord Carnarvon. And, you know, there's a very real danger in Egypt, even one that exists today. Um, it's called mosquitoes. And if you get a nasty mosquito bite and you don't pay any attention to it and it gets infected and you don't have access to proper medical care, you might die. And Mm. guess what? That's exactly what happened to good old Lord Carnarvon. Had nothing to do with the tomb. This could have happened. Did they they prove that? Yeah, it's it's very well documented. It's well known among those who who treated the the man. But the papers are the ones who took it and ran with it. Yeah, I thought I remember hearing something about like. About like uh, ancient fungus or something like that. Like, well, there were several workers who may have come down with some respiratory infections and or or problems as a result of coming into contact with ancient mold spores. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, it is not uncommon for these these grand burials to include enormous amounts of foodstuffs, mm. uh, primarily bread, and as such, the opportunity for mold to develop and grow is certainly there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, God, uh, and can you, you get, imagine you know, that mold? That's like <laughs> that's, that's gross. <laughs> you know, don't don't sniff the mummies. Okay, don't don't don't, <laughs> don't aspirate dead body. It's not a good idea. Um, and so, you know, certainly there there could be very well some truth behind this. But the only death that has in fact been confirmed uh, was that of the untimely death of Lord Carnarvon. And there have been so many thousands upon thousands of researchers and archaeologists, reporters, and tourists alike who have visited the tomb. And I'm sorry, but these folks are all just fine. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure over the years, many of them have, have you know, passed on from natural causes, but I, I don't think I could attribute any of their deaths uh, definitively to, to the curse of the mummy. And it's just something that you don't find in any Egyptian literature 
at any time in their history. Um, there was no yeah, word. Dude, but hey, it'll make did, it'll make a good is there movie. Any, is there any oh, like um, <laughs> any like history into like 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 any form of like I don't know witchcraft or anything like that in ancient Egypt? Was that something that there's any yes anything so there, that supports that? There are references to to you know the dark magics, so to speak, the the kind of uh, evil magics that were performed. One of the most interesting. Uh, records of this has to do with the death of Ramesses III, who was one of um, one of Egypt's Egyptian pharaohs who was actually murdered. Uh, in this case, killed by his harem. Um, several of his of his wives, one of which who wanted to get her son in a position to become pharaoh, uh, orchestrated a plan to have him killed and have the country overthrown. Um, that also and, would make a good movie. Yeah, I know. I don't. I'm surprised be, that, that no one's made a major <laughs> motion picture around it. Um, but in the trial that preceded, um, you, you find that one of the one of the assailants, actually the the gentleman who was in head of who was head of the pantry, uh, one of the more coveted positions in the royal palace, uh, was accused of witchcraft. Was accused uh, accused of this black magic, uh, in which he was said to have been able to paralyze the guards who were surrounding the, the pharaoh, who were supposed to be keeping him safe. Uh, in other words, it was the guard's way of saying, oh, crap, we got lazy and let the pharaoh get killed. Let's blame it on this guy and call it, you know, black magic. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, dude, I think we better wrap up. Any final yeah. thoughts, Eric? Um, I just want to thank you for letting me come on and, and you know, spout about ancient Egypt, which is <laughs> something that, you know, I love to do. And um, I can tell. No, but it was very cool to have you. Yeah, um, I'm glad we could have you, too. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool topic that I mean it. I mean it's probably clear after listening to this. I know nothing about it, but um, <laughs> it's totally cool. So well, I, I have close to two hundred and fifty books in my collection. Uh, if you ever want to expand your horizons a bit in the Egyptian uh, Egyptian fashion, I'm happy to pass on some some good old literature to you. Wow! All right, all right. Wow! And we got like a whole library. I my wife calls it the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. Can I can I make a quick plug though? Can Let's I can I plug it. something on your show? Yeah. Uh, I do a uh, pod or I do a, a Twitter feed where I I do daily uh, factoids on ancient Egypt, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Egyptian Fun Fact. And uh, I have to apologize to my to my usual Twitter uh, Twitter followers. I've been uh, rather ill the past couple of weeks, and um, I haven't had a chance to update. But I'm I'm going to start updating tomorrow on uh, on Turkey Day, the special Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, Egyptian factoid. So, just throwing it out to anyone else who wants to uh, to follow along and learn a little bit more about ancient Egypt every day. Right on, right on. And Josh, where can we follow you on Twitter? Hold on, I'm I'm searching for Egyptian fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, oh, there he is. Um, uh, you can follow me at Wet Josh uh, on Twitter, and you can also uh, listen to this podcast or read my random posts on uh, my blog at distantfuturejosh.wordpress.net. How about you, Jason? It's .net? Did I say .net? No, I meant .com. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Truth be told, I was looking at this Egyptian Fun Facts uh, Twitter feed. <laughs> It's and now I can see you are following. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. Uh, you guys out there can follow me on Twitter. My uh, what do you call? Is it a Twitter name? What do you even call those? It's my Twitter name. My Twitter name is Jason underscore Hayes, um, and that's how you can follow me on Twitter. Um, Josh, do we need to do we need to talk about um, the, move the move of the blog? Yeah. The big- 
sooner or later, we have to move this blog to a new URL. And um, what does that mean? Well, I'm pretty sure that means that we're going to have to uh, change the URL, change the feed, and um, which means you'll probably have to resubscribe to this. Like, we'll still have the same name, but you'll probably have to resubscribe. So if you're subscribed to 19s right now, you may have to resubscribe soon. Yeah. But we'll definitely, you know, we'll, of course, mention it again. And uh, we'll, for any stragglers that didn't hear, we'll do like a, you know, one minute podcast in that old feed saying where our new feed is. So, oh, good idea. That's a good idea. But anyway, uh, that's not for another episode or two. All right. Cool. Let's wrap it up. Thanks a lot, Eric. Uh, It's been my pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. All right. See ya. Talk to you later.